This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the current run of King Arthur stories. You will learn that, unsurprisingly, an invisible knight is very difficult to fight, especially if you can't stop crying long enough to get a good look. Also, you'll see why it's a bad idea to stab someone in the groin with a holy relic. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's another tragic dog death from little naked people buried just beneath a common plant. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 27C, The Errant Knight. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This is the third and final part of a short series on King Arthur. If this is your first time hearing the podcast, this particular story starts with 27A. One quick correction. The city I've been calling Carleon is, according to a listener, pronounced Seilion. Still don't know if I'm getting that right. Also, I've been told that the place King Arthur was conceived is actually pronounced Tintagel, not Tintagel or whatever I've been saying. Some people on Twitter and in the comments joked around about playing a drinking game where you take a drink every time I apologize for a mispronunciation. Don't do that. It happens so much in the early episodes that you might die. Previously on the podcast, King Arthur drew the sword from the stone and became High King of England. He quelled a rebellion led by King Lot and then had an affair with King Lot's wife, who turned out to be his half-sister, conceiving the very person who may later kill him. Arthur obtained the legendary sword Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake, who showed up at his court demanding he make good on his agreement to fulfill a favor of her choosing. Despite Arthur's pledge to protect the Lady of the Lake, she was beheaded by Balin, another knight who had claimed another sword that no one else could. For keeping that magical sword, Balin was cursed to kill his best friend, and now was on the run from King Arthur for bringing shame upon the king's court. As a quick note before moving forward, in between these episodes, Arthur moved his court from London to the legendary Camelot. So that's where he'll be from here on out. Balin's shoulders slumped as he again mounted his horse. He had killed yet another knight sent from King Arthur's court. This was just more pointless death and violence. Balin had killed the Lady of the Lake, and though he was now banished from King Arthur's court for the second time, this punishment was worth it. Years ago, Balin's mother was tragically burned at the stake after a false accusation by the Lady of the Lake had taken hold. Balin had been looking for her for years, but for some reason, it proved fairly difficult to kill a sorceress who lived in a rock at the bottom of a lake. When Balin had encountered her at King Arthur's court, he knew he only had one chance, and he took it. This, of course, went directly against the custom of hospitality, which was taken very seriously in the medieval and ancient world. Hosts didn't kill guests, and guests didn't hurt hosts, sometimes even in the case of enemies. This custom was actually law in some areas of Ireland and Scotland at the time in which this story takes place. Hospitality spans across cultures, it was also huge for the Greeks, and stretched back as far as biblical times, the idea being that in interacting with strangers, you might unknowingly be entertaining angels. 
for one of Arthur's knights to kill a guest that Arthur had not only invited into his home, but pledged to protect, was against the laws of both God and men. In his rage, though, Balin had cast the custom of hospitality to the wayside, decapitating the Lady of the Lake. Now, he was on his way to meet his brother, and rejoice as much as two people could rejoice over a severed head in a bag, for he had killed their family's greatest enemy. And as a very quick aside, there are multiple ladies of the lake. This one did in fact die, but there's at least one more, and that's the one that has a big role in Lancelot's and Merlin's life. And while we won't touch on that today, we definitely will get to that over the course of the podcast. Having bested the most recent challenger from Arthur's court, Balin rode swiftly away. Before long, he saw a knight on a horse in the distance. Though years had passed, he could spot his brother anywhere. He spurred his horse to a gallop and met Balin at the edge of the forest. And yes, Balin. The one that we've been following so far is spelled B-A-L-I-N, and his brother is B-A-L-A-N. They are dangerously similar when recording a podcast, for my sanity and yours. I will keep calling Balin Balin, and Balin, the brother, will simply be his brother. Can you imagine that house growing up, by the way? Hey, Balin, come here. No, not you, Balin. I meant Balin. It would be like one long, unfunny who's on first. This was the first time the two had seen each other in years. Balin had been a captive in Arthur's dungeons, and, well, his brother had been doing the knight errant thing. After high-fiving over the head of the Lady of the Lake, Balin told his brother that he needed help. Arthur would continually send the best knights in the world after him, and he needed to get back in the High King's good graces. He knew just how to do so, too. King Ryans, a petty king in Wales from episode 27a, was now on a rampage to conquer all the other kings throughout England in an effort to ultimately take over as High King. Ryans was the one who was said to have that incredibly gross cloak sewn from the beards of conquered kings. A mottled mess, the cloak had the beards of eleven kings, and lacked just one. The beard of High King Arthur himself. On a roll, King Ryans began issuing challenges to Arthur, and it became well known that Ryans was starting to be a real threat. He was supposed to be petty king under the command of the High King, but he didn't recognize Arthur's authority. Instead, he wanted to be High King. Balin's plan was, of course, to single-handedly capture Ryans, cart him to Camelot, and be welcomed back as a hero. Never mind that King Ryans had already proven himself to be quite formidable, defeating eleven previous kings. No, Sir Balin would not go with a kingdom, nor an army, nor even a group. He would go with his brother. His brother, as it turned out, was completely on board with this idea. With absolutely no plan, they made their way to Wales. They rode for a few hours until, on the road ahead, they saw an old man hobbling along. As they passed, the old man shouted up at them. Where are you riding? the old man asked. We're not telling you, Balin said. What's your name? Old man traveling through the countryside, suspiciously without company, provisions, or appropriate clothing. The old man told him that he would rather not say at this point. Oh, okay, the brother said. He's evil, we should go. The old man piped up. I do know that you want to ride against a king who not only has tens of thousands of warriors, but who, by some accounts, 
is a giant and a sorcerer who has turned two kings in Wales into weak oxen. And see the members only episode for details on that. You want to do this despite having no idea how. Yes, Balin said, and then his eyes widened. Oh wait, you're Merlin. I am Merlin, the old man who actually was Merlin in disguise, replied. Will you help us out? Because you're right. We have absolutely no idea what we're doing, Balin said. In the blink of an eye, Merlin shifted back into his wizard self and told the brothers how they could reach King Ryan's without having to deal with any of his knights, crossbowmen, or fortifications. They could capture him tonight, and in less than a week, Arthur would be completely unopposed as king, and it would all be thanks to them. That night, Balin rubbed his hands. They had been waiting just off the road for hours, but they couldn't light a fire. The wizard assured them that King Ryan's would be by. Apparently, King Ryan's was having an affair with the wife of one of his lords. Said lord had gone on a trip, so King Ryan's had ventured from the safety of his own castle with only a light personal guard on this late night visit. Merlin watched from afar as the well-lit group of knights with King Ryan's riding in the center met two dark figures on horses in the road. The fighting commenced, and shortly thereafter, only the two dark figures remained with King Ryan's kneeling in the road, a knife to his throat. Merlin stood up, shaking the stiffness from his legs. The brothers would figure out how to transport their hostage to King Arthur, so it was time for Merlin to make his next move. Naturally, a war followed mere days after Ryan's capture. Spearheaded by Nero, and no, not that Nero, this Nero was the brother of Ryan's. He had concealed the fact that his brother had disappeared in the night, knowing he must act quickly. Nero led Ryan's army and marched on Camelot, where Arthur had accepted the hostage and forgiven Balin. But Nero wasn't the only enemy Arthur had to face. Unbeknownst to all but Merlin, King Lot, remember him from earlier, had allied with King Ryan's, reassembling the alliance of kings that had rebelled initially in episode 27a. When he heard that Nero was riding toward Camelot, Lot quickly called together his alliance. This was his chance. If they made haste to the south, they could finally crush Arthur. One morning, Lot walked into his tents and was startled to meet the wizard advisor of King Arthur. The wizard told him that he knew Lot was going to commit treason and that he must stop here or else he and his ten allies would be defeated and they would all die. Lot hesitated. He remembered the last time Merlin had showed up at his camp right before Lot's defeat at Carleon. He had ignored the wizard then and it had cost him. Still, this was probably just posturing. He told the wizard to get out of his tent, to get out of his camp. He would just kill the old man, but Merlin was a guest. After all, this wasn't Arthur's kingdom where they did that sort of thing. Merlin shrugged. He had warned Lot, but okay. Watching the wizard walk off, Lot reasoned that, since Nero would be attacking at the same time, this would be the best chance they had in years. So he decided to keep going and attack Camelot. The trip was painfully slow going for Lot's knights. Infighting ensued, broken axles delayed travel, and disease ran rampant among the animals. It took four times as long as it should have, and it absolutely wasn't due to the wizard following them from afar, casting spells and delaying them just long enough for Arthur to defeat Nero and his army. As they neared Camelot, Lot learned that Nero had, in fact, already attacked and been defeated. 
Now Lot and his allies would be attacking Arthur alone. He reasoned that even though it wasn't what they had planned, it was their best chance since Carlan, as Arthur's knights might still be weary from fighting Nero just days before. They attacked. Okay, so I'm fairly uninterested in describing large battles. I don't think it works for this medium. Also, you can probably guess who wins, given that we are at the very beginning of the King Arthur legend. I'm just gonna get right to it. Lot died in battle. He ended up being killed by King Pelinor, of all people, the knight from last episode who was hunting the questing beast and who nearly killed Arthur. After waking up from Merlin's sleeping spell, I guess Pelinor assumed that Arthur had won the match but spared his life. In response, King Pelinor had made peace with Arthur, vowing to serve him. It was his loyalty to Arthur that poised Pelinor against Lot. Lot's son, though, would not be too happy about this. His name was Gawain, and he would harbor a deep resentment against King Pelinor for the death of his father. Both Gawain and King Pelinor will end up as legendary knights of the round table. Balin and his brother fought valiantly for Arthur, and after the battle, Balin decided to stay in King Arthur's court to help rebuild his reputation, and his brother decided to keep adventuring around England to stay as a knight errant, and they parted ways. All the petty kings that had opposed Arthur when his reign began had died in battle that day. Nero and his knights were dead, and King Ryans was captured. After years of unrest following the removal of the sword from the stone, Arthur finally sat back to enjoy the first real peacetime he had since becoming king. For about 10 minutes, until Merlin arrived, sat him down, and told him the terrible, terrible news. Merlin had seen a vision. Mordred, Arthur's accidental son by his half-sister, had survived the sunken ship of babies. Merlin didn't know where the boy was, but he was outside of their power now. Mordred would grow to adulthood, and there would be a grand, final battle in Salisbury. Merlin couldn't see the outcome, but he wagered that it probably wasn't good. To top it off, Merlin prophesied that Balin, the knight that Arthur had allowed back into his court just now, would soon deliver the dolorous blow. It was a horrible attack of so much significance that it would bring death and destruction to three kingdoms and misfortune and storms to Great Britain as a whole for 22 years. Merlin advised Arthur to guard his scabbard, his magical scabbard, that would prevent Arthur from losing any blood as long as he wore it. Enjoy this brief respite, for it will be the last one for a long time, Merlin warned. And because nothing helps you relax like knowing you're going to have to fight the son you left for dead after 22 years of strife, Arthur fell ill. Thinking some fresh air would be nice, Arthur moved his tents out to a clearing and rested there. Apparently anyone could just approach the king while he slept outside, and so a random knight walked by, in tears. Arthur called out to the passerby, hey, night passing through my clearing while I'm defenseless in bed. What's wrong? The sad knight looked at the king, sitting in his bed. There's nothing you can do about it, he replied, and sadly ambled on. And because still anyone can approach the king, Balin rode up, still back in Arthur's good graces after capturing King Ryans. King Arthur told Balin about the knight who walked by crying. Will you go figure out what's going on? Balin nodded, and off he went in the direction of the tearful knight. 
It wasn't long before he found the knight in a clearing with a woman, and the knight was still weeping. Balin dismounted and walked over. Hey, the king saw that you were crying and wants to know what's going on. The knight, with tears falling, said that it would be too painful to talk about. And besides, it's not like the king could do anything about it. Balin pressed further. Hey buddy, we care about you. Now come with me to the king so we can learn what's going on, or I'll fight you and drag you there so you can relive whatever traumatic event is making you feel this way to satiate the king's passing curiosity. The knight looked at Balin. Since the knight didn't want to be sad and get beaten up, he decided to cooperate. Besides, Balin looked big. Perhaps he could help the knight. The knight sniffled and said he would come, but Balin had to protect him on the way. Balin looked and it was like 50 feet, but sure, he could protect the knight. Balin left his horse with a lady and walked back to King Arthur with the strange knight who, you guessed it, was still crying. On the way, Balin thought he heard something, a galloping. He looked behind him and he didn't see anything, but the sound only grew and then the knight heard it. The crying knight started panicking, shouting, no, 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 he's here, he's... But he wasn't able to finish that sentence. The sound of hooves was right behind them, and then a lance tip exploded through the knight's chest. Balon backed up and drew his magical sword, looking all around, hearing hooves retreating off into the distance. Still, he didn't see anyone. Then, all he heard was the poor knight. He was no longer weeping. Now, he was coughing up blood on his armor. Balin went to him, and he was only able to say a few sentences. Garlin. The knight who killed him was named Garlin. He asked Balin to go to the woman back in the clearing. She would lead him on a quest, and Balin would be able to avenge the crying knight's death. I'm assuming it was because the knight had died under Balin's protection, and thus, Balin felt some sort of obligation to him. But Balin agrees to take up the man's quest and avenge him. That being said, if you can't tell, Balin doesn't exactly think before making big decisions. When he killed the Lady of the Lake, he didn't think about the ramifications of murdering a guest of the king in his own house. And when he rushed off to capture King Ryans, he didn't have a plan, and it was only by the intervention of Merlin that he was able to pull it off. Now, he's committing to a fairly big quest of fighting an invisible knight who murdered someone right next to him. Piece of cake. Balin dragged the silent knight back to Arthur recounting to the king as much as he knew. Also, he would be leaving on a quest to avenge this man and kill an invisible knight. See you sometime, King Arthur. King Arthur permitted this and buried the passerby. Balin met up with the woman who was traveling with the knight, and they continued on. Even though the woman was supposed to tell us all about the quest and why the knight was crying, she didn't. The pair just continued on, and a succession of odd things occurs. First, Another knight approached, chastising Balin for feeling sorry for the crying knight. Balin shared all he knew of the story, and so the stranger ended up agreeing to come along and help. The three had traveled less than a day when the helper knight was also killed by the galloping invisible knight in his spear. Balin and the woman stopped to bury the knight, and Balin's rage grew by the minute. On the knight's headstone the next day, it was evident that Merlin had come in the night and had written in gold that Gawain the dead King Lot's son and the future knight of the round table will avenge the death of his father by killing King Pellinor. This strange act of prophetic vandalism has no bearing on our current story, so we'll just move on. In time, Balin and the lady came to a castle 
a very welcome sight after being in the wilderness for so long. In excitement, the woman rode ahead of Balin, entering a courtyard. As soon as she did, however, the portcullis crashed down, separating the pair and trapping the woman inside. Immediately, a group of formidable men emerged from the shadows, surrounding their captive and her horse. She screamed for help, watching them close in on her, knives outstretched. Shouting and spurring on his horse, Balin jumped a low spot on the surrounding wall. He charged the group of men ominously surrounding his companion. Inside the courtyard, Balin drew his magical sword, ready to fight the knife-wielding men when he heard them call out, Wait! We weren't going to kill the woman. This is just an old tradition of the castle. What is an old tradition, Balin asked, his sword still at the ready to kill them all. The men explained that their master, the lady of the castle, had leprosy. Anytime a woman showed up to visit, they would drain enough blood from her to fill a large silver bowl, using it to help cure the symptoms of the lady of the castle's leprosy. Balin nodded slowly. It made sense. Drinking the blood of strangers from a silver bowl was the only way to treat leprosy that science, or druids, had found. It all checked out to Balin. He agreed not to fight them, and yes, they could take as much blood as they needed, provided that they didn't kill the woman. I can see the woman sitting on her horse, eyes wide, saying, Really? But she consented to it, insofar as she could consent to it. Though I can't find any academic explanation for this little episode, it absolutely seems like something directly out of Monty Python in the quest for the Holy Grail. The next day, Balin and the woman simply leave the castle. The lady was a bit lightheaded and woozy after her substantial blood donation. Sweet oranges weren't brought to England for about 1,000 years after this story takes place, so she didn't even get a glass of orange juice to help her out. Continuing on their quest to find and kill the Invisible Knight, the pair rode for four days without seeing a single person. They finally arrived at a castle of a friendly lord who was happy to let an honorable knight and lady stay. Sitting at the table that night, eating, Balin and the lady couldn't ignore the horrible wailing coming from a room upstairs. What is that? asked Balin. The lord replied, oh, that's just my son. He's upstairs, dying. The man held it together for a few moments more and then broke down weeping. The Lord explained how his son had recently jousted with this one knight, a knight by the name of Garlin. Balin gasped. That was the name the crying, then dying knight had uttered. That was the man they sought. Balin listened carefully to the Lord's story, learning that the Lord had jousted with the knight and thrown him down to the ground twice, effectively defeating him. He had let Garlin go, but the invisible knight wasn't one to take shaming lightly. The very next day, the Lord found his son crawling back home with a broken spear lodged in his shoulder. It was the work of Garlin, the Invisible Knight. Now his son lay on his deathbed, and only the blood of this Invisible Knight could save him. Balin nodded pensively. This too made sense. As we all now know, drinking the blood of strangers can cure anything. As they listened, Balin and the woman learned that Garlin was the brother of a nearby king, King Pelham, and they were in luck. In just over two weeks, King Pelham will be holding a feast in his castle. All men of high birth were welcome to come, but they had to bring either their wives or their mistresses. King Pelham apparently didn't judge. 
The Lord also shared that the knight was only invisible when he was mounted on his horse. Garlam would definitely be at the banquet and Balin would be able to attack him there, have his revenge, and also secure the knight's blood for the Lord's son. Balin agreed, and after the Lord said a tearful goodbye to his son, telling him to hold on until they could return, they left. It was a 15-day ride to the castle of King Pelham, and they arrived fortuitously on the night of the banquet. Riding up to the fortress, Balin and the lady were permitted to enter, but the Lord was not, because he didn't have a wife or mistress with him. Balin had left his magical sword with the Lord, but refused to take the other one off when it was demanded of him. He explained that, in his kingdom, a knight was never without a sword, and it would be a great shame to take it from him. Not wanting to offend him or cause a scene, the guards allowed him in with his sword. Inside, Balin put out feelers to see if anyone knew a knight named Garlin. One guest nodded, pointing him out in the crowd. Balin had a decision to make. If he killed the knight here, he wouldn't escape with his life. But if he hung around until after the banquet and tried to meet him on the road, the knight could just turn invisible and, as such, be considerably more difficult to kill. Balin quickly decided. But before he could move, Garlin began walking toward him, visibly unhappy. Do you have a problem, knight? I saw you shooting hateful glances at me from across the room. Balin paused. He realized that he had been looking angrily at Garlin, unintentionally while trying to figure out what to do. That's what I thought, Garlin said, his condescending smirk fading into rage as he backhanded Balin clear across the face. The banquet halted around them. Garlin was the brother of the king who owned this castle and ruled the surrounding lands. There was nothing this lowly knight could do, or so he thought. Don't look at me anymore, Garlin commanded as he began walking away. Eat your food and do whatever it is you came here to do. Balin laughed and felt his red face. You don't know how prophetic that sentence was, he said to the knight. Garlin spun angrily around, shocked that this knight would dare talk back to him. But his surprised rage quickly turned to surprised horror when he realized that the knight had drawn his sword and was slicing it downward on Garlin's head. It was said that Balin did it with such great force that he cleaved the man's head in half. Gasps and screams ensued from all around, the knights loyal to the king springing up to surround Balin. King Pelham rushed to his brother, but given that his head was in pieces, it was pretty clear that Garlin was dead. Murderer, the king said, looking at Balin, rising to his feet. Balin could see the fury in his eyes. The king shouted that Balin had killed his brother, so Balin must die. Quick accounting confirmed that Balin still had a sword in hand when everyone else was still unarmed. Though the king was enraged, Balin still liked his odds. But we'll see that King Pelham still has a trick or two, or a giant mace, up his sleeve when we get back from the break. This week's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek. If you've tried to buy tickets online, most sites make it complicated, and they all try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets online. I've never been a huge sports guy, and I don't listen to that much music anymore because I'm kind of into podcasts, but I used their app to find tickets to see one of my favorite comedians, Seinfeld. They brought in tickets from all the other sites into one place, 
and I actually sent an alert for when he would be in a city nearby, and SeatGeek will let me know if the prices drop. The tickets they pull in are all ranked on value, so they'll actually let you know if something is a good deal or an awful deal, their words, which is nice. You can see the view from your seat before you buy, and SeatGeek's upfront and honest about the price. Unlike some sites, they'll show you the full ticket price the whole time, so you won't be hit with huge fees on the checkout page. Listeners of this podcast can get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, it's the little circle in the bottom right that says me, and hit enter promo code. Use the code MYTHS, M-Y-T-H-S, and after you make your first purchase, they'll send you $20. $20 of today's dollars was the price of over 10 chickens in King Arthur's time, so that's a good deal. I've linked the app in the show notes and on the site, so go and check it out if you're looking for tickets. Now... Back to the story. Balan looked at the king and challenged him with a grin. Die, huh? Why don't you come over here and do it yourself? He mocked. Surely the king wouldn't and would make some knight come after him. I wouldn't have it any other way, the king accepted, not taking his eyes off Balan. A servant laid the largest mace Balan had ever seen in King Pelham's outstretched hand. Oh. King Pelham yelled, rushing toward Balin and swinging his mace. Balin dodged the first two blows, but had to block the third. He raised his sword, and the steel shattered beneath the hefty mace, leaving just the handle in Balin's grip. Pelham saw this, and a smile spread across his face. Balin gulped and bolted. Yep, brave Sir Balin ran away. Pushing past two knights, Balin soon found himself in a hallway. He wasn't far when Pelham began to catch up, yelling for the coward knight to face him and fight. Balin ran and ran through the castle until he had a little bit of a lead, and then he began kicking open doors. There had to be a weapon here, somewhere. This was a medieval castle, for goodness sake. He opened a fifth door, turning briefly to see Pelham around the corner, still enraged and still with a mace in hand. The king was just in time to see Balin duck out of the corridor and into the room. Inside, Balin found an odd-looking spear. It was obviously important. It was on a gold table with silver legs. It looked more like a trophy than a weapon, but seeing as how respecting the property of a king who's trying to kill you usually ranks low on anyone's list of priorities, Balin grabbed the spear. He looked up just as King Pelham's shadow darkened the doorway. King Pelham rushed Balin seemingly unaware of the spear. Realization came quickly, however, as Balin stabbed the king deeply in the groin. Pelham wailed in pain, dropping his mace. He fell to the ground, driving the spear in deeper. He screamed something at Balin about using the spear. What had Balin done? Balin, however, didn't have a moment to rejoice. He was confused to find that the castle was crashing down around him. He tried to run for the door, but saw the stones of the hallway collapsing. He rushed back into the room, climbing over the king who had now passed out from shock. Large stones plummeted from the ceiling. The castle was coming down, it was falling apart, and Balin was trapped in the growing rubble. A large slab of the ceiling fell, crushing the golden table. Balin had only moments to panic, until another stone flew down hard on his head, knocking him unconscious. Pain 
darkness and pain. Balin thought he was awake, but he couldn't move. And he felt the sharp, hard stones on all sides. He tried to scream, but his tongue was so dry that he almost needed to tear it from the roof of his mouth. Then, he heard a rustling and rumbling above him, and then there was a blinding light. Over here, I found him. Help me dig him out. The voice was a familiar one. As his eyes adjusted to the light, he could see several pairs of hands pulling at the rocks. The face of Merlin and monks digging Balin out began to take shape. When he was finally free, they dragged him, painfully, from the wreckage of the castle. Looking all around, Balin could hardly believe his surroundings. What had once been a lush forest was now a wasteland, dry and gray. Dead husks were all that remained of the trees. In place of plains and farms were wreckage and spindly, dry plants. Then, the darkness took Balin again. He passed out. He awoke much later to a monk holding a cup to his mouth. As he drank deeply, Merlin sat in front of him in a tent, watching. When at last he could manage to speak, Balin asked the wizard what had happened. The wind whipped the tent as the wizard explained all that had taken place. The spear Balin had found in the castle was, obviously, no ordinary spear. It was one of the holiest of religious artifacts. On the cross, after Jesus Christ had died, the Roman soldiers came by and pierced his side with a spear to confirm his death. That spear had been entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a Jewish council at the time, but he was also a secret disciple of Jesus. After Jesus was crucified, Joseph gave him his own tomb. That's the biblical account, except there's no mention of Joseph getting the spear in the biblical account. As part of the legend, Joseph used the grail from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper to catch Jesus' blood while he was on the cross. Joseph then took that grail and the spear that had pierced Jesus' side and traveled all the way to England, where he established this castle and a line of knights to protect both items. King Pelham was a descendant of Joseph and was, thusly, also tasked with protecting the spear and the grail. Merlin explained to Balin that his incredible misuse of such a holy relic by using it to stab a man in the groin had resulted in the castle collapsing. It had immediately turned Pelham's kingdom and the two surrounding it to wasteland. It had further brought doom and misfortune onto Great Britain as a whole, and the land would now exist in unrest for over two decades. This event, where Balin used the Spear of Destiny, as it's called, to attack King Pelham, would go down in legend as the Dolorous Stroke, and the resulting destruction would become the catalyst for the quest for the Holy Grail, an effort to heal the land. Balin was speechless, but Merlin told him it wasn't his fault. It was fated to happen, and Balin was only acting in his defense. There was nothing they could have done to change it. Merlin assured Balin that he would survive his injuries, but looked mournfully into the knight's eyes. This was where Merlin had to leave him. Balin said that he would see Merlin again when he returned to King Arthur's court, but Merlin only looked on him with a deeply sad look and left. Balin stayed there recuperating for a few more days, the monks helping him tend to his injuries. He learned that King Pelham had survived as well, and he had been taken off to another castle. Balin decided to let it go. The crying knight had been avenged. Then, with a start, he remembered the woman who had been on the quest with him. 
He asked the monks where she was, and was saddened to learn that no one had made it out of the banquet alive. That room was one of the first to collapse, and the monks had just finished burying them. The woman who had traveled with Balin was dead. The lord with whom they had stayed had survived, since he wasn't in the castle on account of lacking a wife or a mistress. He stayed with Balin for a few hours, returning Balin's magical sword before starting on the long ride back home to his son, who, without the blood of the invisible knight, would now surely die. In a short time, Balin found that he could walk again, and then ride. He bade the monks farewell, and left the castle. For days and days, he lived off his meager provisions as he traveled across the wasteland. There wasn't anything green or living. It was all dry nothingness. The landscape gradually improved as he rode further from the unfortunate kingdom he had single-handedly destroyed. I'm gonna skip over a frankly odd, gruesome, and unnecessary bit that I'll go into more detail about on the website. But it's unnecessary for us, and it doesn't add to the story at all. Still far from Camelot, Balin was tired. He had ridden for days through the wasteland, with only rough, dry ground as bed. He was now in a thickly forested country, and emerged to see a castle on the coast. Weary, he figured this would be a good place to stop and see if he could stay the night. But as he drew near, something caught his attention. A stone cross, emblazoned with golden words, that warned that any knight passing here alone should turn back. Balin, likely reasoning that he had ended a war, beaten an invisible knight, and brought down a castle, didn't worry much about whatever happened to be down this road. He only wanted a good night's sleep. He even shrugged it off when a ghostly old man appeared out of nowhere, wanting him to turn back before disappearing mysteriously into the mist. I believe a ghostly old man appearing from nowhere and giving you ominous warnings is the international symbol for bad stuff is about to go down. Balin, though, didn't turn back, but made his way to the castle, and he was greeted warmly by 100 ladies and many knights. They all lived in the castle, and they invited Balin in for food, drinks, and dancing. At the feast, Balin thanked them, but asked about, you know, the odd warnings and the creepy old man. The lady of the castle said, Oh, well, it's just our custom here that all visiting knights traveling alone just need to joust the Red Knight, who holds the island just off the coast. It's just a small, fun custom we have, where we make visitors fight someone to the death. You look big, though. You'll be fine. Balin, who really just wanted to sleep and not fight someone to the death, didn't say anything, lest they think him a coward. The lady was happy he reminded her about the fight, too. It was getting late in the day, and he had to fight the knight. Balin reluctantly agreed. They outfitted him with new armor, including a new shield. Balin was reticent, as he had had this one since childhood. His shield displayed his family's heraldry, since knights were actually identified by their shields on the battlefield in the Middle Ages. In essence, Balin was asked to change his jersey number mid-season. Balin could see his old shield was looking pretty rough, though, and he needed all the help he could get. All these people were oddly pleased that he would be fighting to the death, and it gave him a bad feeling. Still, he couldn't just turn back lest he be thought of as a coward. He put on his helmet and boarded the boat to the island. 
approaching the small island, he saw the red knight in the twilight. By how the knight sat, he felt like he had seen it before, but he put it out of his head. He had never been to this part of England, wherever this part of England happened to be. Balan's horse had come over on the barge, and as soon as they landed, he mounted it. The red knight saw him and immediately charged. The first hit killed Balan's horse, and as he dropped to the ground, Balan rolled free, drawing his magic sword. In turn, the Red Knight quickly dismounted his steed, sword at the ready. They were well matched, but it was obvious to Balan that this knight was experienced. They both found the weak points in each other's armor, the neck, shoulder, and other areas, hacking and bashing as hard as they could. The fight continued a long time, until the ground was covered in their blood. The red armor masked the island dweller's blood, but after one particularly deep cut, the Red Knight staggered back stumbling down to one knee. That's it then. Balan froze. That voice. It couldn't be. No, he said under his breath. Brother? Balan ran over to the Red Knight. He had to know. He had to see if he had killed his brother. The knight remained on one knee. His breathing labored. He hadn't heard Balan speak, though. And he had one last move. The Red Knight could see that, for some reason, the Challenger had thrown down his shield. So as Balin moved and tried to remove his helmet, the Red Knight leapt up with his last bit of strength, driving his sword deeply into the gap in Balin's armor at the armpit, mortally wounding him. The Red Knight dropped to the ground and coughed, and blood spewed from his visor. He, too, fell. It hurt to breathe, and Balin knew he was dying, but he had to know. He pulled himself up onto his knees and elbows, and labored to crawl to his opponent. Balin found the Red Knight, and pulled off his own helmet. Though blood covered Balin's face, the Red Knight could see. It was his brother. How... How is it you? The Red Knight said. Brother, I... I didn't know... Balan's brother said as he pulled off his own helmet. Balan's brother told him that he, too, had been traveling this land, and he had been forced to challenge and kill the knight who held this island. He had only been here a few days when Balan showed up. There was much lamenting, and the attendants and ladies came out to see Balan holding his younger brother, both of them red with blood. Balan cast his sword aside as he remembered the curse when he kept it from the young woman that he would be cursed to use it to slay his best friend. After the priest performed the last rites, Balan's brother died in his arms. Balan asked that they be buried in the same tomb, and he lingered for several more hours, languishing in pain. He held the body of his brother until, late in the night, he too died. Merlin showed up a few days later and did his golden graffiti thing on their tomb, writing that Balin was the one who had smote the Dolorous Stroke. He then went to the armor and the magical sword. There was only one thing left to do. There would come a time when one who would seek the Holy Grail would need the sword. Merlin refused to touch it himself for some reason. Instead, he had a servant come with him. Merlin directed that a slab of marble be placed into the river, 
and there Merlin enchanted the stone so that it would float above the water. He instructed the very skeptical servant to place the sword inside the marble. To the servant's surprise, the sword slid in easily. Merlin pushed the sword and the stone off into the river, and away it floated. That sword would travel for years on the water before the one who was destined to start the quest for the Holy Grail, who wasn't more than two years old at this time, would pull it from the stone. Merlin returned to Camelot to tell Arthur of the dolorous stroke, and the one thing that could free England from the curse, the Holy Grail. It was King Arthur's wedding day. A lot had changed since he first met Guinevere. His reign was now secure, and he learned that he wasn't lowborn, but perhaps from the highest blood possible from medieval England, that of Uther Pendragon. It was more than enough for King Leo, who pledged his daughter, Guinevere, to Arthur. Arthur had thought of Guinevere often in the time since they had met. Merlin, with his prophetic knowledge, knew what would happen between Guinevere and one of Arthur's knights, and he warned Arthur against marrying her. Arthur ignored his advice and sent word to King Leo. Now it was the day he was to be married, and Merlin and King Leo invited Arthur to a large room in the castle, alone. In it was a large, round table. Merlin told Arthur that the table was something his father, Uther Pendragon, had planned but never fulfilled. He had hoped to bring together the best knights in England to form an order that would be better, both in battle prowess and honor, than any in the world. Because the table was round, too, all the people sitting at it would be equal. It had been a dream of Uther's, but he hadn't lived to see it fulfilled. Now, though, Arthur could make it a reality. Uther, before his death, had left the table to King Leo, and now Arthur would inherit it. Arthur agreed. He had many powerful knights roaming his kingdom, but the whole episode with Balin committing the dolorous stroke and cursing England to years of storm and strife showed Arthur how greatly he needed knights who would vow to always do what was right. On the day Arthur married Guinevere, the woman he loved, he also knighted Gawain, the son of Lot, and, by virtue of his relation to Morgas, Arthur's half-nephew. Over the next several weeks and months, Arthur and Merlin sought out others for the round table. When it was all said and done, only one seat remained that Merlin said could not yet be filled. That seat was saved for a very special night. And if anyone else tried to sit in it, he would die. That seat was called the Siege Perilous, which literally meant the perilous seat. Merlin told Arthur that when the knight finally sat there, it would signal the beginning of the quest for the Holy Grail and the beginning of the end of King Arthur's reign. Yeah, let's keep that one empty for a while, Arthur agreed. The sun cascaded through the windows onto the round table. Arthur sat in his new seat of power in Camelot, surrounded by the best knights in England. Looking at the men seated all around, he saw young Gawain, his nephew, as well as King Pellinore, the knight that had killed Gawain's father and almost killed Arthur himself. Kay, Arthur's half-brother, nodded as he sat beside his father, Sir Ector. There were also several others we haven't met yet, but their stories will come in time. In just a few short years, Arthur had grown from a boy who had fallen into this rule by accident, to a king who ruled England unopposed. 
there were absolutely some missteps, and a storm was coming in the form of a child that he had left to die, but that would not be for many years. For now, King Arthur stood before his knights at the round table in Camelot, with Merlin, his wizard advisor and friend, sitting behind him. And the things they would do before it all came crashing down would be the stuff of legends. That's it for this run of King Arthur stories. We're now at the point where, down the line, we can talk about the stories of knights like Lancelot, Percival, Tristan and Isolde, and others, without having them be weird continuity jumps. That won't be for a little while, though. Next week, we're going back into Greek mythology, and I'll be telling the story of Prometheus of the Titan, and Io, an unfortunate human lover of Zeus. She's a woman Zeus turned into a cow, because Zeus is basically a sociopath with unlimited powers, and who is terrified of his wife. I want to say thanks to Jane Fogo, The Cricket Geek, Daza the Yank, Looper Excellent, Cyber Yugoth, I think, Lissy Room, Jenny S, Ben the Posty, Squall338, Sarah 0391, P. Andre Math Guy, and Michael Potts89 for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the podcast app are the best places, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing going on on the site. For less than the price of half a bar of caffeinated soap, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that probably won't give you cardiac arrhythmia. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Mandragora from European folklore. They are the plant people that make up the roots of the mandrake plant. I actually hadn't seen a mandrake root before this segment, and I was incredibly surprised to see that they actually look like little people. I've linked some images in the discussion post on the site, and the roots can get eerily similar to little naked people. Like the appearance of the mandrake root, the mandragora are little naked people that live under the ground. According to the earliest legends, it's fatal to pull a living mandragora from the ground. As you've no doubt figured out by now, stories from folklore are seemingly obsessed with tragic dog deaths, and the stories of the mandragora are no exception. The solution, then, is just tying your dog to the leaves and letting him pull the root out of the ground, thus taking on any fatal repercussions. And the creature supposedly shrieked as he pulled it from the ground and to its death. The mandragora is, of course, produced from the spirit of a buried murderer, and potions produced from the mandrake root can be a fertility aid, as is actually laid out in the Bible, but be careful not to take too much, because it can lead to madness if taken in excess. That's probably because the root is a hallucinogen and a narcotic. So, the next time you're going to pull a tiny naked person out of the ground to make a powerful hallucinogen, be sure to tie the animal you love most to the leaves so that he can take the deadly curse. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is, as always, by Steve Combs. Discussion posts have become a regular thing on the site, so check that out for more background and discussion on the story from today. That's at mythpodcast.com, but there's also a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>